0: Today, we're gonna to jump into the Word down here. If you have a Bible, can I encourage you to open it up for the fourth week here to the letter of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter four. We're in a series here walking line by line through uh, this letter from the Apostle Paul. Last week, we covered the third chapter. Today, we're gonna to try, uh, Lord willing, to cover the fourth and as you're turning to 1st Timothy and finding your place In chapter 4 and verse 1, let me just kind of uh, let you know where we left off. If you were here last Sunday, or if maybe you caught the message from last weekend uh, online, you might remember we ended with Paul singing or saying in writing to Timothy one of the creedal hymns of the church. Like He he does a lot of teaching, and then he gets to the end of the chapter, uh, chapter 3, and he makes this statement. And he says, beyond all question, the mystery from which true God, Godliness Springs is great. Like there was this thought in Ephesus that, that, that people had kind of unlocked uh, mysteries of deeper spirituality, and we'll, we'll get into some of those that they, things that they thought were the key or the secrets or the mysteries to a deeper spirituality in this chapter. And so Paul ends chapter three saying, let me tell you what the mystery of true godliness is. It's not in all this stuff that we're about to touch on this morning. It's in Jesus Christ. You don't get any deeper than Jesus. This is what unlocks the mystery of godliness. And so when he jumps into uh, chapter 4, he's going to touch on that. But let me just tell you, in Ephesus, the, uh, the, the, the mystery or the, the secret key to spirituality that they were looking at was asceticism. Asceticism is just the the denial, the intentional denial of things God has given to us uh, and declared to be good. It's to declare uh, a stance of abstinence from things that God said are good uh, for the purpose of essentially becoming more spiritual. Ultimately, the problem with that is it lays an ax to the root of the gospel tree. It says that I can be more spiritual because I don't receive the things that God gave to me. So asceticism was a slap in the face of the creator who said in Genesis 1 that everything he made was good. And they were saying, yes, but but if we're gonna be real spiritual, we won't eat that, we won't eat this. Now listen, there is a time to abstain from things. Uh, we, we've taught on fasting. Maybe you've fasted before for the purpose of drawing closer to God. You you abstain from foods or certain foods for a season. There's a time and place for that. Paul's dealing with a spiritual problem. Uh, issue here of of saying, I can become more spiritual by living this lifestyle of of abstaining. Part of it was from food, and it was a a slap in the face of God. It was also a slap in the face of Jesus, because essentially what they were saying is, the the gospel's not enough. Like, the cross wasn't enough. It's the cross, but also you have to take a vow of celibacy. And that was one of the other issues we're going to read about. They were saying that, you know, if you really want to be spiritual... Take a vow of celibacy. Don't get married. That's what they were teaching people. Don't get married. And so we get into chapter four here. And he says in verse one, the spirit clearly says. Now there's a word that's actually missing in this NIV translation. And they skipped it because it reads better this way. Uh, but I think it's an important word. So I'm going to tell you what the word is. Uh, In Greek, it's just two little letters, D-E, but really what it is is however. So it would be more accurate to to read the end of chapter three where Paul says, let me tell you what the real mystery to true godliness is, and then he breaks into this song of the church about the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like, this is the mystery. And then with that song kind of still ringing in their ears, he says, however, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. So now Paul's going to address some specific issues. And maybe some of you can go all the way back in your mind to the first week in this series, and you remember the first command that Paul gave to Timothy in, in chapter 1 in verse 3 and 4. He said, Timothy, I said this to you in your hearing, and now I'm putting it in writing, stay there. I want you to stay in Ephesus. And he said, I want you to stay there to command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. So practically, that was the assignment. Practically, that's what's going on in Ephesus. Timothy is to stay there and to command these people not to teach false doctrine. But now, what he does in chapter four, he comes back to the point, but he's showing us what's happening spiritually. Like, practically, you know your assignment, but spiritually, I want you to see what's really happening. He says that there are people following deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Okay, can I just say that this confusion uh that, that paul is addressing uh, was stopping the advance of the gospel that's what he said in chapter one he said they're, they're doing these things instead of advancing the gospel that's why they must be stopped paul's saying now more clearly this isn't just intellectualism this isn't just a theological debate this is spiritual warfare like He takes it to another level here, and he says, you need to understand why you're there, Timothy, why it's so important that you command them not to teach this. This is not just you know, academia. This is not just scholarship. This is not just rhetoric. No, this is spiritual warfare that you're up against. And can I just say, church, we are living in days where people are abandoning the faith to follow deceiving spirits taught by demons, Paul says clearly in later times. You say, "What well, when are the later times? Well, it's later now than it was when he wrote it. And on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, they said in the last days. And Peter said, these are those days. So they believed the last days started on the first day of the church. Jesus died, he was buried, he resurrected, he ascended, the Holy Spirit's here. Now it's the last days. Let's get the job done. And living in the last days today, we see so much of this deceiving spirits, things taught by demons. Let me just mention a couple, woke ideology, deconstructionist theory, gender fluidity. Now, let me just say, I said this last week, I want to say it again. I'll be the first to admit that there are some... There are some scriptures that are hard to to parse out, hard to nuance, and we have to be gracious when it comes to the non-essentials. Like there's a lot of people worshiping in different churches today, different denominations. We disagree on some things, but those things are, are not the keystones of our faith. When it comes to the issues that are stopping the gospel from going forward, when it goes to things that are being taught by doctrines of demons that discredit the authority of God's word or undermine the sufficiency of the cross of Christ, those are the moments where the people of God need to stand up. Those are the moments that people need to speak up. In fact, that's why Paul is writing this letter. It's, it's, it's why it's one of the 66 books in your Bible today. Some people would, would read that first verse and they would go, like, come on, you, you actually believe, like, there are... Demon spirits teaching people, yeah, and how intellectualism does about spiritual matters that are spiritual matters. You go, well, you, you, I mean, you mean to tell me you really think that that's what's going on in our world? People are following deceiving spirits. That there's uh, things that are being taught by by demons. Listen, it, it, don't don't look for like a cape uh, or a pitchfork or horns, you know, to be peeking out of the professors outfit in the front of the classroom, Paul says exactly what the teachers will look like in verse two. He says, these teachings, such teachings, come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. In other words, they're liars. They're not telling the truth. They're hypocritical, which means they're not even living by the truth they're telling. And their conscience is seared, which means they have no conviction about their hypocritical lying. And then Paul starts to list specifically some of the things they were teaching. I've already alluded to it, but let's just read it, verse three and four. He says, they forbid, this is what was happening in Ephesus. They forbid people to marry and they order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created... Is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. So in Ephesus, what was happening is the, the Essenes were, uh, were reported, even by Josephus, he reports in the early century that they rejected pleasure as evil, but esteemed continence as virtue, and they neglected marriage. So so this is what was happening. A form of spirituality, they were rejecting the gift of God in marriage. By the 2nd century, Gnosticism had already taken root in the church at Ephesus. And the seeds of Gnosticism were already here when Paul's writing, and that's why he's writing it about it. But but the Gnostics regarded the human body and its functions as evil and the spirit man as, as pure. So, so the things of the flesh, they're to be rejected, abstained from, crucified, and the things of the spirit are the only things that matter. That, that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Some people that, that, that taught asceticism and then other people that just had the opposite. They were like, just live it up, do whatever, because your body doesn't matter anyway. These people took the route of asceticism as a, as a way of being more godly. And so these ideas, they were, they were converging on the Jews and on the Gentiles, and it opened them up to, to these ascetic practices. It's interesting. I was, in my study, I, I realized that this year marks the 1,000th anniversary of the Catholic Church requiring their priests to remain celibate. Asceticism. Like... A thousand, this is the anniversary, 1,000 years, but actually did a little investigating. It goes way back beyond 1,000 years, even to a taught practice in the Catholic church within 200 years of Paul writing this letter. Leland Riken, in his book, Worldly Saints, notes this. He said, the dominant attitude of the Catholic church throughout the Middle Ages was that sexual love itself was evil, and it did not cease to be evil, even if its object were one spouse. That's what they were teaching. Some of y'all, don't get your keys, don't leave. Like, I'm not saying I believe that. Like, some of you are like, we out of here, honey. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not staying for this. <laughs> Ambrose said this. Married people ought to blush at the state in which they are living. Like, oh, how dare you married couples? Even Augustine said, that the sexual relationship was innocent in marriage, but the passion that accompanies it is always sinful. Like this was the the mentality that they had gotten into. In fact, Augustine frequently counseled married couples to abstain from intercourse. The church fathers are virtually unanimous historically in their praising of virginity's superiority to marriage. At the Council of Trent in the 16th century, the church denounced anyone who denied that virginity was superior to the married state. So a a celibate uh, minister would be far more spiritual than one who's faithfully devoted to his wife. The Roman church, uh, every year, they, they kept adding more dates to the calendar that they said marital intimacy is prohibited until finally more than half the days on the calendar uh, were excluded. It's no wonder we had a reformation, right? Like, folks, Martin Luther's like, this has gotta change today. <laughs> like, <laughs> right, like, I mean, I think there was a little more to it than that, but you understand, like, like it, it had just kind of gone more and more this direction of asceticism. And, but here's what happened. When, when there was a reformation in the church and the word of God, was back in the hands of the people of God, they began to recognize the beauty of the gifts of God in creation, that, that, that sexual intimacy is holy and good and right, that God designed it uh, not just for procreation, but for pleasure between a husband and a, and a wife. And so there was a return to God's goodness and God values as they began to exalt the authority of the word of God in their life. So look at verse six now. Verse six, Paul says, and if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus nursed on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. As I read that this past week, here's my thought. I wish I could make every pastor in America memorize that verse. I wish I wish I could make every preacher read it 10 times. Because a lie that contradicts the gospel affects our culture and it contends for the souls of people. That's what these Doctrines of demons are doing. It's not intellectualism. It's not public discourse or, or, or political ideology. It's a doctrine of demons, and Paul recognized it as such in his generation, and we would do well to do the same in ours. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I was in Ohio for our general counsel, and there was a presentation made by the Assemblies of God Legal Council. Uh, the head of that legal counsel is an attorney named Kristen Wagner, Uh, I shared a video from her speech online. You can look at that. I'd encourage you to, but I wanted to just give you a couple of things that she said as she was dealing with uh, with some of the issues in our culture today. In Paul's day, it was it was you know celibacy and the foods we eat. In our days, there are different doctrines, but the same devil. Kristen said we are facing a growing tyranny of lies. Lies that are embedding into the law, and some that are even creeping into the church at large. And then she gave some of those lies, some of the lies we're experiencing today. One of them is that marriage and family are malleable, and they can be redefined at will without any consequence. That's a lie. One of the lies we're facing is children belong to the state, and the state should raise them, not their parents'. Another lie that we're facing in our generation is men can become women and vice versa because gender is based on subjective factors like our feelings and not on biology or objective truth. Wagner went on to say, it is because of threats like these that God has given us parents And shepherds to help those parents to lead our children through the wilderness, fend off the wolves, and to declare truth boldly. Understanding that when we follow God's word and principles, we actually promote human flourishing. And she said, Love our neighbor requires us to speak in this moment and not cower. You know, it's true that many. Parents are are genuinely fearful about the idea of sending their kids to a a public school because of good reason. There is an authoritarian effort in our nation that is seeking to impose a vision of gender identity that is not only unbiblical, it is also incompatible with a free society. Kristen Wagner said, gender ideology redefines dissent. In other words, if you, if you disagree with someone's belief, she said, gender ideology redefines dissent as a form of harm. Our children are being taught that if you disagree with someone's feelings, that is a form of violence that must be silenced and punished. Let me just speak as a dad for a moment. Our kids are being put on the front lines in a conflict They didn't ask to be in. Our our Jesus-loving, God-honoring kids that that wanna do their best to to follow their, they wanna follow their convictions, but they don't want their attitude or their opinions to be called violence. They don't wanna be silenced for their faith, but they also don't wanna be punished for it either. So the, the lines Are being drawn. And and I wonder, I wonder how many in the church today sees it for what it really is. I wonder if we see it for what the Bible says it is. The Bible is very clear about what it is. We read it in verse one. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and they'll follow deceiving spirits being taught by demons. And more importantly, I wonder how many of us would hear what the Word of God says to pastors, to ministers, to leaders. Again, verse six, it says, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus. Can I, can I just say to you today, I don't care if I never become a popular preacher I may never be a a Christian influencer. I may never be famous, but I know one day I'm gonna stand alone before the presence of God Almighty. And this better be true of me. You were a good minister, a good minister. Paul goes on to to speak personally to Timothy. Timothy. Let me just say before I move on, because I always understand, I'm speaking from one context, but you may be listening from another. There's nowhere in scripture that promotes or allows us to be hateful. There's nothing in God's word that encourages us to be unloving towards lost people or to remind sinners continually that they're sinning. You don't have to remind a dog that it barks or a duck that it quacks. Sinners sin, okay? That's That's what sinners do. They sin, but at the same time, we, we, we can't buy into the narrative and just go along perpetuating a lie. It's being taught by demonic spirits through hypocritical liars and then say, well, we're doing that just so that we can you know, show love and have an inroad for the gospel. Friends, the gospel never rides in on a lie. It never does. You have to point out the truth. 1 Timothy 4, verse seven, Paul says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. So here it is, Paul saying this for like the third time here. He says, This is a trustworthy saying. This deserves full acceptance. What does? That godliness has value for all things, holding promise both for the present life and the life. To come, What Paul is saying, and we need to all remember this, is that developing your spiritual muscle is more important and, and more significant than anything else you can do in your life. Developing your spirit, man. It's so, it's so easy to just get consumed with like, what we're dealing with in the natural, to just get preoccupied with what's going on around us. The truth is, it would be a lot easier to not deal with difficult people. It would be so much easier for Timothy to have just like packed up and taken a different assignment. That's why the first thing Paul says is, hey, I told you to stay there. Now I'm writing it. Stay there. Like I need you to deal with this stuff. I need you to deal with the issues that are happening in the culture. Why? Because the work that you're doing, it has implications, not just for this life, but for the one to come. What Paul was saying is, Timothy, what you do, what you say, how you live your life, it echoes in eternity. Friends, can I tell you, you don't just work at your job. You're not just raising a family. You're not just teaching a class. You're not just getting a degree. Everything you do has implications for eternity. And Paul understood that, and he's communicating to Timothy how important it is. Jesus said many times about this same principle. In Luke chapter 16, he said, whoever can be trusted with a little will be able to be trusted with a lot. But the one who's unfaithful or dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. In other words, Jesus was saying, This life that you're living, that I'm living, it's a stewardship test. Jesus would say, Don't tell me that you're going to serve me after you graduate. If you won't serve me now, you won't serve me then. Don't tell me you're going to serve more after you retire. If you won't serve me now, you won't serve me then. Don't tell me you're going to give more when you get a promotion. If you won't give me one-tenth of what you have now, you won't give one-tenth of what you have then. Jesus gave a picture to the disciples of what it's going to look like on the day of his coming. And he said it's going to be like a master who returns and all of his stewards have to give an account for the work they did. He said, that's what it's gonna be like for you. You're gonna give an account for the deeds done in the body. And he says, here's what that servant wants to hear from the master. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Paul the apostle talked about this principle in uh, the letter to the Corinthians. He reminded them that one day, Every one of us are going to stand before the Lord and face judgment. Now, the good news is we don't have to face judgment for our sins, our sins were already judged on the cross. We can stand before God with a clear conscience knowing that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's the blessed hope of the redeemed. But there is a judgment for the redeemed. And Paul describes it and he says that if you build your life on this foundation, this is 1 Corinthians 3.12, talking about the foundation of Christ. He said, if you build your life on this foundation using gold or silver or costly stone or wood or hay or straw, like whatever you build your life with, Verse 13 says their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to the light. It'll be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Some people live their whole Christian life and they never knew this. The quality of your work will be tested. That's why the Christians ought to be the ones that always have their face on the company wall that says employee of the month because you don't work for them. You work as unto the Lord. It's not about you know your manager or your coworkers. It's the fact that one day the quality of my work will be tested before the throne of God. Verse 14 says, if what has been built survives, then the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. In other words, you're not saved by how good your works are. You're still going to be saved even if you don't do, if you don't do any work for God. If you're just a lazy Christian, but you believe in Jesus, and He said you'll be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. I don't know about you, but like I don't want to I don't want to get into heaven smelling like smoke. Like whoo, I just made it. <coughs> whoo, I'm here. No, I want to come strutting like a peacock. Like. <laughs> What's up, Peter? Yeah, we're here, man. I mean, but there's a te- there's a testing for the quality of your work. Paul understood that what we do now echoes in eternity; it has eternal implications. So he reminds Timothy and us. He says, "Godliness has value for all things in this life and in the life to come." This is a trustworthy saying; it's worthy of full acceptance. Godliness has value. In all things, not only in this life, but in the life to come. So many people think that you know, eternal life is something that God grants us after we die because we're saved. Eternal life doesn't begin after you die. Eternal life begins after you're born again. It's not just about a quantity of life, it's about a quality of life. The Spirit of Jesus comes to live on the inside of you so that you can live a faithful, fruitful life for His service. So, when when everybody else in the classroom is cheating, godliness has value, not just in this life, but in the life to come. When everyone else is in the break room tearing down the administration and you're tempted to jump into that cesspool, godliness has value in this life and in the life to come. When you stand up for your biblical convictions, and nobody else stands up with you. Godliness has value in this life and in the life to come. And when you're tempted to do something and no one else will know if you did or didn't, godliness has value in this life and in the life to come. So Paul says in verse 10 then, that's why we labor and strive. Because we've put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. I'm so thankful that that Jesus came to save all people, red, yellow, black, brown, white. They are precious in his sight every age Every race, every language, every ethnicity, every people group, every person. He came to be the Savior of everyone. But then he says, especially of those who believe. In other words, Jesus is the Savior of all people, but you can turn him down. Many who won't believe. In verse 11, Paul says, command and teach these things. When he says these things, he's probably talking about everything all the way back to the beginning of chapter 2 because he's just been hitting things one at a time and covering a lot of difficult topics that were happening in Ephesus. But he says, I want you to command and teach these things. Then verse 12, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. How fitting that the Lord would have us get to this verse on back to school Sunday. What a great verse. What a great reminder to all of our young people. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Paul says, Timothy, that's not an excuse. In fact, he doesn't just say, don't let them look down on you. What he's saying is, Timothy, they ought to look up to you. They ought to look up to you because the way you live your life. Your speech and your conduct, in other words, your, your walk and your talk, the way that people see you interact, you ought to be the example. And then in those internal issues of the heart, in your in your love, in your faith, and in your purity, say, be the example. When you walk into the classroom, or when you walk into the office, or into the locker room, don't be a thermometer that just responds and regulates to whatever the spiritual or moral climate is in the room be the thermostat you set the temperature you determine that you're gonna you're gonna honor god everybody else might do this but i'm i'm gonna walk a narrow road god said in his word in joel chapter 2 in the last days i'll pour out my spirit on all flesh your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Now, I told you earlier that the apostles considered the last days the church days. It was on the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit came down and everyone in the upper room was filled with the Holy Spirit. They were speaking with new tongues and a crowd was gathered and Peter stood up and he tried to explain what they saw. So he reaches back and he grabs Joel chapter two and he says, this is that which was spoken of in days of old. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Can I tell you, church, the same spirit that was poured out then is still being poured out today. He's still available. His power's still available. And when his spirit is poured out on our sons and on our daughters, they don't get Holy Spirit Junior. They don't get Holy Spirit Light. It's the fullness of heaven's resources available so that we can be effective witnesses for God. At the university, at the high school, at the middle school, at the elementary school, God is pouring his spirit out in the last days. Because he has no intention of his church cowering in a corner, singing, hold the Fort." Called to be his witnesses. I, I, I want to just read the last couple verses of the chapter and we'll close. The, these are Paul's most personal words to Timothy that we've read yet. It, it's a charge to Timothy. And, and as I was reading it, I just, as I often do, I just personalized it. I just said, you know, Holy Spirit, you inspired Paul to write this to Timothy. I just received this as, as a word to me today. So look at it with me, verse 13 through 16, and we'll end here. Paul says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. The first thing Paul says is Timothy in verse 13, until I come, devote yourself. I, I wish there was a, another solution than that, but I've looked. There's not. Devote yourself. You know, when we look at Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was poured out and the church launched, and we see 3,000 people saved, and then you turn the page, and another 5,000 people are saved, and and then you turn the page, and you see miracles happening. People are are being healed and, uh, you know, Paul's walking by people, and his shadow heals. And we, we look at that stuff, and we get so excited, especially as a Pentecostal people, and go, man, if the Spirit would do that, that's what we need. Like Revival would hit the nation of America if the Spirit would do that. But can I tell you, all those supernatural exploits, as amazing as they were and as confirming as they were for the gospel, that was not the key to the success of the first century church. You wanna know what the key is? You do have to go to Acts chapter two, but it's not the front of the chapter. That's where we like to go, the first part of the chapter where the spirit was poured out. You wanna know what the key to their success was? You gotta go to the end of the chapter because in Acts chapter two in verse 46, it says, they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, so Paul says, like, at the end of the day, like, Timothy, I can't do it for you, you gotta devote yourself, devote yourself, he said, to the public reading of scripture, can I just personalize that, and challenge you, as we begin another school year, If, if your house is anything like mine, you're gonna start to see a lot more books stacked up on the counter, or on the kitchen table, Let's not just let this year be about academics. How about we say, this is a year I'm gonna devote myself to the word of God, We get that book back out. Some of us, maybe all summer, you've kind of slacked off and in the devotion, it's it's a great time to set a new rhythm in your house and in your heart and say, I'm gonna devote myself to the reading of the word. He said, devote yourself to the preaching and the teaching. I think this is a great time of year to devote ourselves to the house of God again. Can I just challenge you? You know, As you find a new rhythm in this school year, I know like my daughters and I, it's summertime, they're teenagers, we've been staying up way too late enjoying TV series together, but, but it's about to change. We're about to set a bedtime in our house again. Some of you, you need, you need to set a, a new rhythm and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna devote myself to the house of God. Come on, that was the easiest amen moment. You're here, you did it, you did it. Like, amen, I guess, amen. talking about a consistent devotion in your life. And then he says, don't neglect the gift of God that's in you. Can I challenge you to devote yourself again, to be faithful to the gift of God in your life. The Holy Spirit, the Bible says that salvation, the Holy Spirit chooses gifts no, nobody here that loves Jesus, that's a follower of God, can have the Holy Spirit of God living in them and then also say, well, I don't really have any gifts. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. In fact, later, Paul will write another letter to Timothy and say, hey, stir up the gift of God. Because sometimes it kind of settles to the bottom. Like, you know, there was a time and a place I used to be involved, I used to be serving, I used to be doing this. But you need to stir that up again. So Paul says, devote yourself to it. Devote yourself to it. I wanna invite you to stand with me all, all over the room as we get ready to end this service. Thank you for just giving your heart and your attention to the word of God today. As we get ready to close this service, I just wanna take a moment to just pray, just pray what we've been processing back into the atmosphere and encourage you to just by faith, grab a hold, grab a hold of some of these prayers. Maybe there's some things that the Lord has been speaking to you about this morning and you don't need my prompting, you know, like I gotta talk to Jesus about that. This would be the moment. Come on, let's, let's go before his throne in prayer. God, I thank you today that your presence is here in this place. Thank you for how sharp and accurate the word of God is, that it could speak uh, timely and practically and very specifically to Timothy in Ephesus in the first century. And yet, Lord, your word, it, it still cuts like a surgeon's scalpel in 2023 in our American context. God, thank you that your word is is penetrating our hearts and lives. Help us to have discernment. What an important gift of the Spirit in our generation, Lord. Give us discernment to recognize. While there's a lot of just opinions floating around, there are also deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons that are being propagated in our culture. God, give us the spiritual discernment to recognize what's happening, to not naively go through our days or or apathetically sitting on the sideline in the name of love, God help us to be so bold and righteous in our balance of grace and truth that we would point these things out to our brothers and sisters. That we would be considered good ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, thank you for new beginnings. Thank you that your word says your mercies are new every day. And so for some of us, maybe it's, it's been a long time coming, but we have an opportunity right now to devote ourselves again. And so Lord, I, I, by example today, I, I consecrate my life again. I devote myself this, this third quarter of 2023 as we launch into a, a new school year and a new season in my own house. God, I, I devote myself to your word. Again, I devote myself to your house, to the work that you're doing. And God, make us faithful to the gifts that you've given us. For some of us, they've just been lying dormant for too long. For some, we've been too afraid to even try anything. So we haven't discovered those gifts because we haven't haven't exercised any of them. God, give us the boldness and the courage to step out, to know that, that... Little as much when God is in it. And so, God, you can use us. We want you to use us. We want to be faithful, Lord, to watch our life, to watch our doctrine, not to spend all of our days watching other people's doctrine, not to be the heresy hunters, always looking to see where other people, but, God, we want to watch our life and our doctrine closely. Thank you for your word and your work in us. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen. Amen. Come on, if you love his word and his presence, let's let him know it today. Amen.